So a few days ago marked the 65th anniversary of one of the most well-known martyrdoms of the 20th century. On January the 8th, 1956, five men were killed in Ecuador while on a mission to take the gospel to unreached Christians. We've actually got a picture of those five guys right here. So Ed McCulley and Pete Fleming and Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and Roger Gaderia were all working in Ecuador to take the gospel to unreached people groups. Now what happened is they moved essentially to Quito, Ecuador, and began to work with a certain group of people sharing the gospel. And there were other ministers and missionaries there doing that. And these five guys decided that they had heard about this group of people on the inner jungle of Ecuador who had never had a gospel witness in their lives. And so they found a little mission inside the jungle where they could stay, a base of operations. They took a Piper PA-14 plane and they began to fly missions into this particular village. They would use a basket to lower down or drop down and spoke on a loudspeaker as they were flying about the fact that they were there to help and trying to speak their language. After several months, they found another place closer to the village within walking distance of the village for the villagers. And they made that their base and built that up and continued their mission. Eventually, a small group of the villagers came to see what it was all was about and one that they called George asked if he could ride in their plane so they gave him a plane ride they're excited about what was happening they thought they were making progress in fact they began to make plans to go visit the village and take more necessities to them but then introduce them to the gospel what they did not know is that George had been spreading false information and negative information about these five guys in the village And so before they could go to the village, ten warriors showed up at their camp. And when two of them went out to meet him or meet them, they were instantly killed. And the other three followed shortly after. Now, one of the, some of you may know this, has been in movies, actually. They made a movie about their particular journey. Time magazine wrote an extensive ten-page article about it around the time. One of the things that's interesting about their lives is that their children and their wives decided that the mission was worth it and went back to that same village. And eventually, many in that village would accept Christ. But what I love is that one of the guys that is probably the most well-known of these is Jim Elliott, Jim and his wife Elizabeth. And just a few years before this incident happened, Jim, who kept a diary, extensive diary, wrote in there, This particular quote has become synonymous with him and famous, but it is a quote in his diary from about six years before he was martyred. And he simply says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. As I was studying this week and thinking about these verses of Scripture in Philippians, I thought about these five guys and the fact that they gave up everything to go there. They actually lost their, you know, they, their families lost them. They lost all that they had, it would seem, to the world's eyes. But to them, they gave up things they could not hold on to anyways to gain the advancement of the gospel, something that they cannot lose. 
And I couldn't help but think, every time I hear that quote, I think about Paul's quote in Philippians 1.21, which says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Take your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 1. We started this walk through the passage of Philippians, through the book of Philippians last week. With Paul's welcome and thanksgiving prayer and the fact that joy was a part of what this church brought to him. What we're going to do now and what happens in this moment is he's going to give them a personal update. Now, most letters of that day and time were simply that. Uh, hi, welcome, good to see you. Here's an update about us. Now, similar to, so we've just gone through the Christmas season and Christmas cards go out, but sometimes people write Christmas letters with their Christmas cards, right? And so sometimes you get a letter and it's, it's a generic kind of thing. Hey, great to see you. Here's an update on our family. We have a few friends of ours that do Christmas letters and we always love to hear the updates, especially ones that we're not around a whole lot. And that was a lot of what the letters were in Paul's day. Now, Paul obviously didn't write a lot of those kind of letters. He would give a personal update often at the end of the letter and it would usually be short. Like, hey, these couple guys are working with me. We say thanks. Thanks to so and so and so and so for helping us out. Make sure you give them all our best. Greet each other. We're doing all right. But in Philippians, Paul gives an extended discussion of what's going on with him. He gives them an extended update on what's happening with him. And then he launches into the teaching after that. And people have asked, well, what's the reason behind that? Why is he up front, and first of all, instead of the back, and so lengthy in his description of what's happening? And the answer to that is, I think, is because the Philippians were generally concerned about him. And I don't know how far they would have made it into the letter without saying, give us an update on Paul. There is a, an attraction, a, an admiration, a, a love that they have between this church and this apostle that we saw last week, the joy that they bring with each other, the way he described his feelings for them. And they had sent Epaphroditus to find out information about Paul. They had sent a gift to Paul to help him in the midst of this. And as they're waiting on results, when Epaphroditus comes back and says, well, he's still in prison, he's still in lockdown, he's still on house arrest, this is what we think. They're wondering, so how is he? What's going on? How's Paul? How is he feeling? How's he, how's, what's going to happen to him? Is he okay? Is everything all right? Paul wants to set their mind at ease. The concern for his safety and his well-being. And Paul writes, to them about what's happening in his life. Starting in verse 12, it says this. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. So that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord for my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. Because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which I should choose. I am torn between the two. 
I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I'm persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ may abound. A couple of things just to note on kind of the outset, and then I want to get to the message that he's giving here. The first thing that I notice, what is remarkable about this particular section, what is remarkable about this particular update on Paul's condition, is there is very little actually given by Paul about how he is actually doing. He, he just says, what has happened to me? Right? That's all he says. We're not really sure what all that could mean. I mean, it is true that there is a lot that has happened. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he's just saying, hey, whatever's happened to me, good, bad, indifferent, whatever it is, don't worry about that. His update to them is not an update about him. It is a moment of teaching about how to live through whatever happens to you. Like, how would you fill in that blank if you were to write out whatever happened to me? You wrote about your best days and your worst days and the things that are good and the things that are bad. Like, what would you write about right now? What is life like for you right now? What is the whatever happened to you right now? In regards to school or regards to work or regards to your social life or your relationship, your family life, your home life, your spiritual life, your emotional life, your physical life. Like, what has happened to you? Because what Paul is going to give them a master class in here, and again throughout the book, culminating in chapter 4, is how to handle whatever happens to you. Whatever it is that happens to us, we can handle in a particular way. And so the first thing we see in this passage about how we handle whatever happens to us is this, that regardless of what happens on us, we must stay focused on our calling. Scripture says there specifically, stay focused on your calling. Paul here says, now whatever's happened to me, brothers and sisters, it has been actually for the advancement of the gospel. Paul is saying that he is an ambassador for Christ wherever he is. We're not exactly sure what is happening to Paul at this moment. What I know for sure is that he is probably in prison and is not fulfilling what he had intended to do. Paul has made clear that his mission in life was to get to the ends of the earth. Now, why would he want to get to the ends of the earth? Why would he want to get to the ends of the earth? That's what Jesus told him to do, right? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, here's the thing. When we hear that, we just think that's he wants to get to the whole world. But in their day, there was an actual place called the end of the earth. And it was on the tip of Spain. And Paul has in his mind that he has to get to Spain. Now, here's what I know. Wherever he is at this moment he's writing, he is not in Spain. He is more than likely in jail in Rome. And he is sitting in a prison with his mission on hold. It's on Paul's. His idea of what God wanted him to do was to get to the very end of the earth, to go as far as he could imagine going and to tell people about Jesus. And yet Paul is here waiting. He is in a holding pattern. He is not being able to do what he feels like God would have him to do, his mission in life. And yet he is still focused on his calling. You ever been in a waiting pattern? 
few years ago, um, some of you have heard this story before, but a few years ago when we went to Brazil, we missed our flight. A few of us missed our flight uh, connection at Miami to get home. And we were supposed to get home around 10, 11, 12 that day. I don't remember exactly, but it was late morning. We were supposed to get home into Nashville. And we missed our Miami flight because of security checks, and they sent us to two or three different places. When most of our team got on, but just about um, five of us did not. They immediately rerouted us to, hey, we can get you on the next flight that will get you to Nashville. Great. Where will that be? Well, first you're going to have to go to Washington, D.C. That is not what I consider a direct route. So we flew to Washington a couple hours later. We sat in Washington, D.C., could see the I'd never been to Washington, D.C. at that moment, could see the Washington Monument out there. It was great. It was a good moment. And then we sat there for two or three hours. Then we finally got on a plane and flew to Nashville. It took us a lot longer than it would have. And we're flying into Nashville. I'm ready to see my family. I've been in Brazil for 10 days. Uh, you know, we're excited to be home. And we get to Nashville, and you see some lightning off in the distance, and the Crew comes on and says, we've just been informed, it's dangerous to land, we're going to circle for a little while. It was terrible. Now I know those are like first world problems, you know, getting home and flying in a plane and a comfortable plane, like circling, but the waiting was terrible. I, I think we probably circled for 20 minutes, it felt like two and a half days, just in that holding pattern. Paul here, we don't know how long he's been in the holding pattern. But he has been waiting to fulfill his ultimate mission, to get to the ends of the earth. But he realizes that where he is now, God is still at work. He says that what has happened to me, whatever it is that has happened, if you read the story of Paul's life, as he describes it, there were riots that happened where people rose up against him. He spent two years imprisoned. And one of his imprisonments, he had a shipwreck, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was left on the open sea for a day and a night. And in this case, probably is imprisoned in Rome. He says, whatever has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. It has moved forward the good news of Jesus Christ. And in waiting, God is still working as long as I stay focused On the calling that he has for me. Paul's understanding here is not that God moved in spite of his adversity. But that he used his adversity to move. That he moved through it. And he gives two ways that it moved. It tells us in verse 12 that this advanced the gospel. Verse 13 tells us that to pagans, to those outside the faith, to those that don't know Jesus and have never heard the gospel. It has become evident that here I am in chains for Christ. That doesn't tell us for sure that the imperial guard accepted Christ, but there's some understanding and some speculation that that probably happened in the midst of this. But what we know for sure is people that would not have heard the gospel without Paul being imprisoned have heard the gospel because Paul has been imprisoned. And he's saying it's advanced because this is where I am. He says the second thing is not only has it affected those outside the faith, but it has also given hope and emboldened people inside the faith. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and are speaking the word more fearlessly. Imagine that. Paul, 
has been imprisoned. The, at this moment, the leader of the missionary movement of what God is doing in and around Europe. And as he's being imprisoned in Rome, as he's there in the center of the, of the world, in imprisoned state, that people around him are taking boldness and encouragement from his imprisonment to speak louder for who he is. As American Christians, one of the things that we have to ask ourselves, and we hope never to have to worry about this, but the reality is, as we are in a world that has been hostile to the faith of Jesus Christ for most of the history of the faith of Jesus Christ, we have to ask the question, would stipulations and things that refuse or try to discourage or outright ban us from speaking the truth of who Jesus Christ is and the gospel of Jesus Christ, if those were to be enacted, would they embolden us or would they make us shy away? Well, Paul says not all, that's, not all that is, is, is just great. There's some people that are doing it out of selfish ambition. There's some people that are doing it because of rivalry, trying to one-up me. He said, some are doing it out of love and good motives. He said, but the point is this. Whatever it happens, no matter what goes on, Christ is being proclaimed. And the calling on Paul's life and the mission of of Paul's life are interconnected in some ways. And for you and me, they're interconnected as well. The calling on our lives is that we are to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaim it to as many people as we can as much as possible during our time here on earth. Our mission is how that flows out of our lives. And so for Paul, that was planting churches and moving on, trying to get to the ends of the earth. But he realized whatever place he found himself in at that moment, it was sovereignly appointed by God that he is to share Christ in that moment with those people. And although he is in chains, the gospel is not. His only desire is that Christ is proclaimed, even if the methods and the motivations are different than his. He only cares that the gospel is going forward in power and the strength of God's name. 2020 and the beginning of 2021, you know, everyone was so glad to see that calendar turn the page from 2020 to 2021. There are people now saying, can we just go back a little bit? We'll be remembered because of the pandemic and because of upheaval and because of lots of injustices and things that have happened in our country and things that are still may happen in our country. It is going to be remembered at it's a time when we will talk to our, we, we tell our kids, you'll talk to your grandkids about the year of 2020. The Lord tarries his coming, delays his coming. This will be a year that people talk about. But one of the things that we have to realize, one of the things that Christians must come to terms with is, despite the fact that our churches don't look like they looked a year ago, our ministries can't look like they looked like a year ago, our lives are not like they were a year ago for most of us, our calling is still the same. Regardless of the circumstances or the situations of our lives, we are to glorify God And to be a part of extending his kingdom. Where we're planted. Here and now. 
Paul says there's a way that he does that in particular, that his calling is the focus of his life. But then he gives us his understanding that he wants to, with everything he has, he does not want to be ashamed about anything, that he always wants to be courageous, and that he wants to honor Christ completely. And so the second thing about the way we live our lives is that we are to honor Christ in all circumstances. In all circumstances. In good and in bad, we honor him. Well, how do we honor him? The first way that we honor him is that we rejoice in Christ consistently. If you've got your Bible still open or you're on your app, you can look with me at this. This is at the end of chapter 1, verse 18. He says, all that I care about through false motives are true is that Christ is proclaimed. And then he says, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. Paul will use the phrase rejoice throughout the book of Philippians. It is that word of joy. It is the verb of joy. It is giving praise, giving joy, giving out this understanding that God is in control and I'm going to rejoice in everything that is happening. The idea literally here is that Paul is probably changed under house arrest to a Roman official. And yet in the midst of that, he's going to continue to seek joy and to praise the name of God. There are no complaints that we see coming off the lips of Paul in this book. He is going to rejoice completely in him. One of the things that needs to happen in our culture and in our churches and in our church is that we need to get back to a revolution of rejoicing. No matter the circumstances that we find ourselves in, no matter the disagreements that we might have, no matter what we come against in our world, that as Christians we rejoice. The Bible makes a stark contrast between following God and complaint. Those that are truly actively following God have very little room in their lives for complaint. And those that are complaining on a regular basis have very little room in their lives for following God. And we live, as we've talked about again and again, in a world of complaint. If things don't go your way, complain about it. If things don't happen the way you want it to, complain about it. Let them know. Write them a letter. Give them an email. Write a Facebook post to let people know this isn't working. Complain, complain, complain. And if you complain enough, the squeaky wheel gets the oil, is what we say. Just complain. And if for a biblical model of following Christ, complaint is not a part of our vocabulary. Our lives should be filled with rejoicing. One of the commentaries that I'm using a lot in this um, particular study is by a guy named Peter O'Brien. He's written other commentaries that I've used. He's written a good one on Ephesians and other places. But I just this week read the testimony of how Peter O'Brien came to know Christ. And what's interesting about that, Peter O'Brien is one of the most well-known, well-respected scholars of New Testament writing. And he says the way that he came to know Christ was through his mother, but that his mother came to know Christ through her neighbor, and that she was impressed by how her neighbor faced situation after situation after situation, and she never heard her complain. That she would talk to her and it would be a terrible situation and she would not complain. She would always rejoice in the middle of it. And at some point, Peter O'Brien's mother thought, if she can rejoice in the midst of everything that's going on in her life, I need to find out what's happening with her. One of the tragedies of American Christianity is that we have become just as strong in the complaint department 
as the rest of those who do not know Christ. It doesn't matter what our circumstances need to be. We need to rejoice in Christ consistently. I think back to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 through 20. I think we've got that. We'll put it on the screen so you don't have to turn there. This is Habakkuk, the prophet, talking about his praise to God. And he is a back and forth with God, asking God question. God responds, asking question. God responds. And he says, though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls. We'll keep it there for a moment. That is the absolute worst case scenario for an agricultural society. No food, no livestock, no plant life. This is if my life has everything dry up, my cash is gone, my bank account is closed, the savings have been spent, and I don't know where my next meal is coming from. If that be the case, he says, he goes on to the next part of the verse. Yet, I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. He says, regardless of the circumstances of my life, I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. We honor Christ in all circumstances. First, by rejoicing in Christ consistently. Secondly, by relying on Christ always. He tells them, That he is looking forward to his deliverance. Verse 19 of chapter 1. My salvation is what my translation says. The word deliverance is the actual word in the original. And there's some discussion about whether that is that he will be taken out of jail. Although I think that is in mind. But ultimately I think he's talking about being saved from his sins and taken to heaven with Christ. And so he says, because I know that will lead to my salvation. And that what's going to happen is to get me to that point until salvation. To get me through, to continue through what is happening. He says, I I'm going to rely on Christ completely and you can help. The help of the spirit is going to be a part of me and the prayers that you are praying for me are strengthening me in this moment. Paul says that I'm going to rejoice in the Lord consistently. I'm going to rely on him completely. I'm going to rely on the spirit of God to give me the strength that I need. And your prayers have a part in that. By the way, there are those that sometimes wonder about the value of their prayers. And scripture makes it very clear that the prayers of a righteous one affect much. And he says here that it's going to bring provision of the spirit. It's going to bring strength. It's going to bring comfort to Paul in the midst of trying to live and honor Christ in his current circumstances. And so we rejoice continually. We rely on him completely. And then the last thing about what it means to honor Christ is we represent him courageously. Paul's getting ready to go before a court, before a trial. And he says, my prayer is not, notice this, verse 20. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything. His prayer is not that he will be convicted or not convicted. His prayer is not to be found innocent. His prayer is not to be released. He says, regardless of what happens, my prayer is that I will represent Christ courageously and that I will stand before others and declare who he is without doing anything to dishonor his name. He basically says that I care more about his glory than my glory or my security or my comfort Or my life. 
all I care about, he says. If I'm dragged before a tribunal, if I'm dragged before a military trial, if I'm dragged before Caesar himself, which he'd appealed to Caesar, my only prayer is that in those moments I will not be ashamed of Jesus. Now we know from the book of Acts he is brought before the highest authorities on multiple occasions. What I love about that is every time he goes before them, he tries to convince them of the truth of Christianity and witnesses to them in his defense. Paul, defend yourself. And he will start with, well, I was walking down a road as a persecutor of the church when suddenly Jesus showed up. It is a classic testimony. This is my life before. This is what happened. And so I'm standing before you today because I cannot be silent about who Jesus is in my life. And so we need to be courageous about our faith in the public square. We need to be courageous knowing that it's something we'll grow in and we'll see our perspective change in the midst of that. Let me just say real quickly as a side, a separate note, there's a big difference between being courageous and obnoxious. Okay? Just like there's a big difference between sometimes being confrontational in a biblical way and just being mean. Like the Lord calls us to be courageous in our sharing of the gospel. That doesn't mean he calls us to be obnoxious. The problem for most of us is not on the obnoxious end. Most of us aren't flirting with being obnoxious about Christ. Most of us are flirting with being courageous at all. And the call in our lives is to stand firm and proclaim him no matter the situation, wherever we are, and honor him in that way. And the last thing in this passage, after we are people that remember our calling and honor Christ in everything we do in all circumstances, the last thing is we look forward in hope to his deliverance. Paul says there, my eager expectation and hope is this. The word for eager expectation there literally means the craning of the neck to see. When I think about being at a, um, as a parade or being at a, something that's getting ready to start or with my kids and, and getting ready for something to happen. Think about those times in my life when my kids were younger when they would sit on my shoulders in anticipation that something was about to happen. A parade was about to go. Fireworks are about to start. We're at Disney and they're about to start the nighttime thing. And the anticipation that is building in the crowd, they craning their neck to see it. Another way that this word is used is from someone on the opposite end that is in a place hungry down waiting for bombardment to start from the enemy like it means that it is on the edge it is on the cusp it is almost time there's this keen anticipation and the question is how do we look forward and hope to that we look forward knowing that God is going to protect us and God is going to deliver us in the end and Paul encapsulates that in this dilemma He says to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he basically says, I don't know which one I should use. He uses a word, by the way, in there that talks about he has a desire to be with Christ, but he also has a desire to be with these people. And it's the same word that is used in Luke to describe the emotions that Jesus was feeling when he was debating with the Father, not debating, but praying to the Father, if this is your will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. That in that moment, it says that he had this This from-the-gut dilemma. Synectomai. It means deep-in-the-gut emotion. That he is truly torn. He says, man, I wish I could go be with Christ. Like, you can imagine after a life of shipwrecks and beatings and imprisonments, that he is like, man, I will be glad when this is over. 
He said, but at the same time, God has still got a plan and a purpose for my life, and I want to follow that. It's an interesting perspective on someone that has come so far to say that my calling in life is based upon who Christ is. My desire is to honor him. And so if my death is the means by which it would honor him, then Lord, so be it. We live among people. We live our lives doing everything we can to keep on living. We want to delay heaven as long as possible. I think about songs like, Lord, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go right now. Like, just keep putting it out there. We celebrate the will to live, right? I mean, just this week I read a story about a guy named Bill Jeraki in Colorado who got his leg pinned under a boulder. He had been out there when it was kind of warm, but he knew that in Colorado the winds could change quickly. And he knew that within the next 24 hours it was supposed to get cold and snow. And he didn't have on a jacket. He just had on a flannel shirt. He could not break his leg free from the boulder. And so he took his flannel shirt off, long sleeve, and tied it into a tourniquet around his leg. And he took his fishing knife out and cut his leg off at the knee joint. He then clamped it with some things he had in his fishing kit to clamp the arteries off, crab walked to his truck, and drove himself to the hospital. That's what you call the will to live, amen? And we do, we, we, that's our nature, human nature. Like we want everything we do to, to stay alive, to fight for it. And yet Paul is like, man, I, I enjoy living. I, I enjoy it because it's for your benefit and I get to share Christ. But the ultimate gain comes through being reunited with my Savior. Imagine this conversation with he could have had with some of the imperial guards. Paul, we hate you and your faith and your Messiah. We're going to kill you. Great. To die is gain. Well, you know, on second thought then, we're going to let you live. Awesome. That means that I get to talk to more people and spread the gospel farther. Well, then we're not going to kill you. We're going to keep you alive, but we're going to make you suffer Awesome, because the sufferings of this present world cannot compare to the glories coming in the next. Like, you couldn't get anything on Paul. And the lesson we learn from this passage of Scripture in particular is this. When our joy is connected to our relationship with God and the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, rather than the circumstances we find ourselves in or what other people think about us, it remains with us that joy Regardless of where we find ourselves. When our joy comes from, when our life comes from, from our essence comes from, our relationship with God and the mission and the calling He's put on our lives to spread the gospel. And it doesn't matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, we can know that that joy is going to remain firm. And so I'm asking you today, church, For us as a church to think about what it means for us to stay focused on the calling of First Baptist Goodlettsville. For you as individuals to stay focused on the calling that God has called you to. I'm asking us as a church to honor Christ in every circumstance. I'm asking you as members individually to honor Christ in every circumstance you find yourselves And finally, we want to look forward with eager anticipation to the reality of what Christ is going to do so that we live our lives boldly and courageously sharing the gospel. Our calling to advance the gospel 
should be the rallying cry of our united life as believers in this church for the glory of his name and the sake of his kingdom. And my prayer is that we will find that focus and that honor and that we will focus on what he's called us to do. Let's pray together. Just a moment here. We're going to sing a song of giving glory to God, of glorifying his name. And as we do that, we realize that one of the ways that we glorify him significantly is through the lives that we lead. And so I'm asking as we pray that today and as we sing that today that we want to glorify his name. Whether or not in your life right now you have remained focused on the calling that God has for you. Whether you have honored him in every aspect of your life and whether you are so focused on who he is. That all future circumstances, you know that you can find joy in them because of what he has promised us. If you're here in the sanctuary, the front will be open for you to come and pray. You can come and pray to the Lord about specific issues or areas or circumstances. For you to find joy in the midst of that, to stay focused in the midst of that. You can come today and Lay your life before the Lord, maybe for the first time. Maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and today is that day. In these moments, I'm just asking you to spend some time focused on your relationship with the Lord and living out the calling He's put on your life. Heavenly Father, we pray that in the words of Paul, we would realize that to live as Christ and to die as gain. To live is the opportunity to share you and the gospel of what you have done in sending your son. Father, that to die for those of us that are believers when it is time for you to take us home, Lord, that for those of us that are believers, it is gain. And so, Lord, we can live our lives courageously, proclaiming the truth of who you are, because of the promises that you've made. We pray, Lord, that we will be people that would live courageously for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.